Alright, that one's a little more obscure, but once again, we have a Welsh singer. So, welcome to the Welsh cast. My name is Jamie. And I know this one's a little late, and I have an explanation for that, but I'll save it for the end. So I'm going to turn down Gem, a uh, different Gem than Gem in the Holograms. But if you got the Gem in the Holograms reference, you are about as old as I am. Okay, so... As you probably remember from the main podcast, before we had the appearance of major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, there was an initial migration and invasion in the sub-Roman period, with famous leaders like Hengist, Horsa, and Ayla appearing in Kent and Sussex. But there was also a staunch British resistance to those incursions, led, in part, by a man by the name of Ambrosius Aurelianus, who might have also been known as Riothamus, and also might have been the inspiration for Arthur. But only maybe, because Arthur is a bit of a mystery. So that resistance culminated in a battle described by Gildas as Mons Badonicus. But in the Arthurian legends, it's known as the Battle of Baden Hill. And Gildas tells us that following that fight, there wasn't any further conflict between the British and Germanic migrants. And to support this story, we have accounts from the continent that indicate that there was a reverse migration. That Germanic migrants were packing up and saying, ugh, enough of this Britannia thing, and heading back to mainland Europe. All of this points to a story of resistance, violence, and possible expulsion. Though the reverse migration could also just be a response to other factors, or just the air of violence, rather than any specific act of expulsion by the Brits. But the point is that by the time that Gildas was writing in Wales, the expansion of the Anglo-Saxons had been halted, at least as far as he knew. Complicating the matter, though, is that we know that there were at least two major English dynasties that had already been founded in the East, and they would turn out to cause all manner of trouble for the Brits later on. The first was founded by Churdich in Wessex, and the second was founded by Ida in Bernicia. And the fact that Gildas isn't talking about them should raise a few red flags. However, we could look at this a different way. The fact that Gildas wasn't concerned about them could reflect how small they might have been at around the middle of the 6th century. Don't forget that, at least judging by the archaeological and written record, it seems like those early kings, such as Churdich, were more farmers than they were warriors. And that plays into the possibility that the early kingdoms were probably closer to villages than actually kingdoms. They were probably pretty small. Now, Gildas's silence could also reflect other things, such as how isolated he was, and also his biases. And I'm sure that those aspects might have played some sort of role. But in general, if Churdich and Ida were out there causing trouble, the impression that I get is that Gildas probably would have been talking about them. At the very least, I think he would have mentioned how they were God's judgment against the godless heathens for failing to live without sin. Seriously, the more I think about it, the more that I'm convinced that if Gildas knew about those kingdoms, he would have talked about them. After all, he wasn't really big on that whole turn-the-other-cheek thing, nor was he into that whole let-he-who-is-without-sin-cast-the-first-stone thing. He was pretty judgmental. Which I find funny, since, you know... Christ didn't say all that much, and Gildas was well-educated, so he should have known what he had to say. But it seems like the fire and brimstone of the Old Testament appealed to him more than the hippie feel-goodness of the New Testament. And of course, that raises questions, right? Such as, I wonder what he thought about shellfish. 
Anyway, so what can we infer from all of this, other than the fact that I suspect that Gildas approached the Bible like a salad bar, picking the bits that he liked and leaving the rest? And hopefully he left the ranch dressing. That stuff is crazy fattening. Well, what we can infer from all this is that for the first century of the sub-Roman period, things overall were swinging in the direction of the Brits. While there might be the formation of Germanic dynasties, they were small, and the majority of Britain seemed to be in British hands, with the Germanic settlers either getting the hell out of Dodge or bunkering down in their communities. So, the first century of the sub-Roman era, overall, was a British century. I mean, sure, you had that Vortigern versus Hengist and Horsa thing, and that didn't go too well, and you have a few incidents with the Picts and the Irish, but overall, things seemed to be coming up Britain. But things started to swing against the Brits as time went on. And as things turned against them, and we saw the Anglo-Saxons picking up steam, you can't help but wonder if Gildas was correct in his assessment of the various monarchs of Wales. Namely, his assessment that they were awful. I mean, if the rulers of Wales and British England were more focused upon working together and developing their lands and defenses, rather than strutting around and patting themselves on the back, when they weren't too busy being stabbed in the back, well, they might have done better against the encroachments of the Germanic tribes. So maybe Gildas had a point. And the really damning part of the historic record is the impression that we're given of the Welsh reaction to the spreading influence of the Anglo-Saxons. That impression is one of, eh, who cares? I've got mine, Jack. What I mean by that is that we aren't seeing much of a unified response out of Wales to the Germanic kingdoms. In fact, judging by what survived the Welsh records and literature, it doesn't seem like the Welsh were at all concerned with the Eastern British communities during this period. For example, we're generally not told anything about the British kingdoms in the East from contemporary Welsh sources. And that silence is rather deafening. I mean, what they're basically screaming at us here is that there probably wasn't much of a tie between the kingdoms of Wales and the Eastern British kingdoms. If there was, you would think that they would at least talk a little bit about what was going on over there, you know? And don't forget that Gildas was telling us about how the Welsh kings were basically like sinful peacocks with heavily stratified communities. So assisting their neighbors to the east might not have even occurred to the ruling classes in Wales, who were too busy reveling in their own power and wealth, provided that Gildas can be trusted here. So after about 50 years of the Gildasian peace, things picked up again, and we had the Germanic victories in 552, 571, and 577. And with those victories, we heard of more and more territories coming under Germanic control, and also of the deaths of various largely unknown British kings. And keep in mind that these territories, the ones that were getting gobbled up by Wessex, weren't very far from the kingdom of Gwent, or even from Powys for that matter. And yet, it doesn't look like there was any intervention from Wales. Now, to be fair, it seems like the British kingdoms were giving Ida and his sons quite a bit of a headache. But that seems to have been generally Elmet, Strathclyde, and Regid, not the kingdoms of Wales. Now, I should be clear, though, that a lot of this is speculation. This period is a strange area to study, because our sources are so sparse, and as a result, there's a distinct danger in interpreting what might have been happening, specifically because we just have so few facts to rely on. We're essentially trying to read complex political and social movements from the archaeological and written record equivalent of tea leaves. 
there's very little evidence. And oftentimes, we're forced to look at the absence of evidence and try and use that silence as a way to determine what was happening. But that silence can always be misleading, and simply the result of bad luck in what survived, rather than something more significant like a political decision. So we should be cautious with our interpretations. That being said, there does seem to be a bit of isolationism going on in Wales during this period. Do you want proof? Let's talk about religion. Because that's a pretty big deal, and honestly, it's a rather strange aspect of this period. This is a time when the Germanic settlements began to rapidly spread. But they've been in Britannia for over a hundred years. And yet despite this expansion, and the length of exposure to the British population, which outnumbered them, Christianity wasn't spreading into the Germanic regions. Neither was Latin for that matter. And we know that Latin, Christianity, and thanks to the presence of Gildas and others, classical education was still alive and well in Wales. And yet when we look to the East, we find that it's all about Woden, Germanic languages, and illiteracy. That's a pretty big contrast between the East and the West parts of Britannia, isn't it? So the first question to ask is whether or not that lack of cultural spread is normal. And it might be a good idea to look at a large nearby kingdom that dealt with Germanic migrants and see how those people dealt with the integration on a cultural level, not just within individual communities, but within the region as a whole. And as luck would have it, the Franks are nice and close. So if we look across the channel to the kingdom of Francia, we see something very different. The Franks rapidly adopted Christianity and integrated Latin when they migrated into Gaul. Within a couple generations, it happened really fast. And that's pretty much the opposite of Britain, isn't it? If Eastern Britain went the way of Francia, the Anglo-Saxons would be speaking Latin and Brythonic, they'd be Christian, and they might have continued writing things down. Basically, Eastern Britannia would look more Welsh. So what's going on here? I mean, in both circumstances, you have a group of Germanic migrants that are outnumbered by the local population. Yet in one situation, the migrants adopt a lot of the local customs and the local religion. And in the other circumstance, the locals abandon their customs and religion and adopt the German ways. That's weird, isn't it? And believe it or not, this is relevant to the Welsh caste, because the way the Eastern Britons reacted to the migrants directly impacts the story of Wales. And this difference that we're talking about might speak to contrasting reactions within and to the local population. Maybe the Anglo-Saxons were more xenophobic to foreign culture than the Franks. Or maybe that shift was a side effect of other behaviors, such as the potential apartheid that we talked about. Or maybe they were just more stubborn than the Franks, or any number of other reasons. Conversely, the British might have played a role in this as well possibly refusing to integrate with the migrants early on and drawing distinct cultural lines. After all, they had those early successes and they might have been feeling their oats, so to speak. And then, after a hundred years, once the pendulum started to swing towards the Anglo-Saxons, the divisions were too deeply drawn between the populations, and the British communities just weren't talking to the Anglo-Saxons and vice versa. And that sense might have been amplified in Wales, where they are more removed from the Anglo-Saxons than the British communities that lived along the borders. So maybe the Welsh, after a hundred years, had a cultural thing that they didn't want to talk to the Anglo-Saxons. Maybe there was just too much bad blood between them. Or maybe they were too arrogant, feeling that the barbarians were beneath them and that they didn't belong in Britannia, or something like that. It's all speculation, but something like that might have happened. 
Now, you might be tempted to say, well, the Welsh were cut off from the world. They weren't talking to anyone, so you can't really judge them for not talking to the Anglo-Saxons. Cut them a little slack. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the case. If you remember back to last week, you might remember that there were indications that Wales was in contact with cultures that were as far away as Byzantium, and that the contact continued into the 7th century. So the Welsh were engaged in the world. So this isn't a matter of the British not talking to anyone. And conversely, we know that the Germanic kingdoms had contact with both the continent and with Scandinavia. So they weren't cut off either. And yet we have this possibility of a sort of silent treatment in those early days, quite possibly for very human and maybe very petty reasons. And that split between the communities would end up influencing history for centuries to come. Now, there could be reasons beyond cultural stubbornness and general xenophobia for the dramatic difference between how Britannia responded to Germanic migrants compared to what happened in the continent. Part of it, at least the language aspects, could also be tied to economies. After all, you speak the language of the trade centers, and if the Anglo-Saxons controlled food production and distribution, you would really need to learn their language. And conversely, if the Romano-Gallic community controlled the remains of the agricultural economy, the Franks might have needed to learn their language. So the Brits in the East might have had a motivation to learn Old English. And actually, in the West, the Welsh might have needed to learn Old Irish, since the Irish migrated into at least parts of Wales and seemed to have taken over parts of the ruling classes. So there could well have been economic reasons for the split between the populations in their reactions to the incoming migrants. But the religious aspect of the split is rather strange, and it's why I keep coming back to the silent treatment. Because the reactions of the two populations to religion really fits in quite well with this growing sense that we're getting out of Wales in the 5th and 6th centuries. I mean, Christianity wasn't just waning in Eastern Britannia. It was in a massive decline with the spread of the Germanic kingdoms. And paganism wasn't just present there. It was dominant. It was just taking over. Meanwhile, in Wales, you see the reverse. Christianity was the dominant force in the land. And that's a really striking contrast. And you should be asking yourself, why weren't the Welsh and British converting the Anglo-Saxons like the Romano-Gallic communities did with the Franks on the continent? Why was Christianity disappearing in England, despite the presence of numerous Christian kingdoms in the West? It's odd. Well, if we assume that there is a growing cultural segregation between East and Western Britannia, which can be reflected in their languages and laws, as well as the sizable gaps in their records for each other, where they just weren't entirely sure what each other were doing, well, that could explain a good part of it. And by shutting themselves off from their neighbors, there might have been something along the lines of an echo chamber going on in both communities. And that would help explain why the West intensified the integration of Celtic culture and language in the same way that the Anglo-Saxons did with Germanic customs and languages. I mean, when you look at it, it wasn't just that the two communities were nearby and slowly drifting apart. No, they were sprinting in opposite directions. And I suspect that a lack of contact would only serve to heighten those differences. When you look at it, they really don't look like they were interested in sharing anything. Not even religion, despite the Christian emphasis on evangelizing. And that's kind of odd coming out of a pious community like Wales, isn't it? But there might be human emotions at play here as well. And there probably was a great deal of resentment going on. Don't forget that from the Welsh perspective, they probably felt that these pagan barbarians had no right to be in their lands. 
So why talk to them? And more importantly, why enable them to get into heaven? What better revenge than to ensure that, in their view, the Anglo-Saxons would spend an eternity in torment? That's the ultimate strike back. Conversely, it's pretty clear from both the later written laws of the Anglo-Saxons and also from the genetic studies that have been done that the Anglo-Saxons tried to keep mixing to a minimum. They might live in communities with some local Brits, but it looks like the Brits were an underclass. And consequently, why would the Anglo-Saxons want to learn a low-class language or worship the god of the people that they defeated and felt were beneath them? What purpose would such a weak god serve? After all, with paganism, Worship was a bit transactional. Kind of like along the lines of, Hey Woden, what have you done for me lately? Furthermore, being a Christian in a pagan world would have been quite a headache. And I'm not being snarky here, it really would have been something of a problem. Here, let me explain. So Bede noted with disapproval that during the pagan period, there wasn't much religious antagonism. What I mean by that is that he was pointing out that people weren't walking around saying, you're worshiping the wrong god, and if you don't switch, I'm going to give you quite a thrashing. And based on the tone that Bede was taking, that was kind of expected out of Christians. It was seen as something of a virtue. You're supposed to walk around and correct the ways of others, especially when it came to their religious beliefs. And that aspect might not have been very attractive to the Anglo-Saxons in the early period. Maybe I'm just too much of a hippie, but hear me out on this. I think you have a point. Walking around and telling everyone that they're wrong and making threats seems like a kind of stressful and dangerous way of life to me, especially in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And a savvy pagan Anglo-Saxon might look at that and say, wait, you're a small religious minority that's generally based in the underclasses, and you want me to walk around picking fights with the powerful members of society? Yeah, I think I'm going to pass, but thanks for the pamphlet. And that, too, could explain why there was a religious split between the communities. It would just be really hard to convert them. But what I'm getting at here is that, despite the fact that both communities were engaged with the larger world, it looks like the British and Germanic kingdoms were cut off from each other, and neither side had much of a motivation to talk to each other. And if there was some level of talking, it doesn't look like either side was listening. Consequently, things were getting a bit heated. After all, when you have two groups who demonize each other, refuse to talk to each other, and live in their own echo chambers, it tends to lead to radicalization, miscommunication, and belligerence. And I'm sure you're quite happy knowing that the Middle Ages are over, that people have learned from history, and that we definitely don't have groups of people sitting belligerently in echo chambers in our modern day. So to recap, in the West, we have Irish influence, some Scottish influence, tons of local British influence, and a heavy dose of Christianity. And it looks like there was quite a bit of isolation from the eastern part of Britannia, and a cultural move in a diametrically opposed direction from what was going on in the Germanic kingdoms. The division between East and West has now been established. It wasn't always there, but now is deeply rooted, and it will persist throughout history though not always as intensely. Today, we look back at over 1,500 years of cultural division between East and West, and it starts right here, with people, for whatever reason, failing to talk to each other. All right, you might have noticed that this episode is a day late, but I have a good excuse, in the form of a starving, heat-exhausted cat. So this cat, I'd seen her for a few weeks while out running, and she was getting skinnier and skinnier. 
And of course, I started to worry about her. And when I saw her collapsed in a yard, emaciated and not moving, it was clear that something had to be done. So we formed Team Catnap. And we picked her up and brought her home. We then proceeded to push fluids and food as much as we could. The poor little lady really looked like she was on the edge of death. And on top of everything else, she smelled awful, had dental problems, and of course, had fleas. She was in such a rough way that she couldn't even purr properly. She gurgled and drooled. Now I'm not a cat person, but I am a soft touch for lost, unloved, and broken things. And she was certainly that. So naturally, I fell in love with her and named her Maud. And I suppose that shouldn't be much of a surprise, considering that Kerouac came to me banged up, hairless, and looking like a scarred up fist. And then he left this world a chubby, fuzzy, happy little sausage. I have something of a history of doting on fixer-uppers. So I stopped working on the show, and I spent all my time fussing over this smelly, drooly little addition to the family. Hence the lateness. Well, on Monday, we took her to the vet to get her teeth taken care of and also get her checked out, and it turned out she had an implanted microchip and that she was lost. She'd been lost for over a month, in fact. And she had owners who were looking for her. And we also found out something else. She was a he named Greg. So Maud was actually Greg. I told you I'm not a cat person. So Greg is now at home with his owners and the BHP is still mascotless. But that's why this one is a little bit late. Sorry about that. Go Team Catnap!